Well, once again, it's good to be here at Holy Trinity. Y'all are so warm, and you're welcome to me every time I'm here. I just feel like this is sort of a home away from home. Two or three times a year, I'm down here, and I love your music. Carl, you just do a great job. I just enjoy it so much. Well, here we are in our third night studying promises of God, how to claim promises, how to use the promises of God's Word to advance in our spiritual growth. This is the key. Spiritual growth just doesn't happen automatically. It's not like osmosis. We don't just keep showing up and going to church week after week after week, and then you know, somehow along the way we're just going to grow up and mature as believers. That's the way a lot of people think about the Christian life, and it just doesn't happen that way. Uh, a lot of people can be moral. They confuse the morality with the spiritual life. They think that if I'm cleaned up my life, I, I trusted Christ, and now I clean up my life, and I'm living a good life, going to church on Sunday, occasionally on Wednesday, then, then I'm growing in, as a believer. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that growth comes by walking by means of the Spirit. But it's not some empty mysticism. It's not, as I said the last two nights, it's not this sort of empty faith in faith that we so often hear from the health and wealth, name it, claim it, uh, preachers who are on television all the time and who build the big churches. These are not the, the, the men who are students of the Word of God and teaching the truth of the Word of God. Scripture says that we walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And what we have seen the last two nights is that walk by faith is a walk by means of a body of doctrine, a body of truth. That when the Scripture uses the word faith, many times it, it uses it not in the sense of actively trusting God, but in that body of truth that's encased in the Scripture that we call the teaching of God's Word or doctrine. And it is that body of truth that is the faith we hold dear. We use the word faith in that way many times. We talk about the faith of our fathers. We talk about a Jewish faith, Catholic faith, Islamic faith. We talk about faith as a body of truth, a body of beliefs. And the Word of God expresses that. So when we walk by faith, we're walking by means of a body of doctrine that we believe. And the reason I say that is if you set up the contrast that's in that verse, walking by faith and walking by sight, faith isn't contrasted with sight. Because sight represents empiricism, the idea that what I know is the result of what I uh, perceive through my senses. And if you study it philosophically, and I did my <clears throat> did a master's degree in philosophy, and what undergirds all human systems of understanding is basically a faith perception that, that I believe that the mind or the senses or human ability is such that apart from God, I can come up with truth. So faith is not juxtaposed to reason. That's a false dichotomy. Faith is not just juxtaposed to experience. That's a false dichotomy. Because both reason and experience are ultimately based on some faith proposition. That the issue is believing in the revelation of God or believing in human, the independent use of human reason and human experience. So when we look at 2 Corinthians 5, 7, and we're told to walk by faith, we walk by a body of truth. Now, the body of truth is encased in Scripture, encapsulated in Scripture, embedded in the truths of God's Word. And many times these are uh, crystallized for us in specific promises that God has given us. Now, a lot of folks like to claim promises, and you have little books that you can go down and pick up at, at B. Dalton or any of the other bookstores in town, and there'll be some little Christian devotional section that has more garbage than truth, and there'll be a little book in there that, that anybody can put together that's going to say, you know, book of promises. <clears throat> and I don't know whether they're any good or not. Uh, I've looked at some of them, and they have classifications and categorizations of promises. Some of them I... Because I know the interpretation of the passages, I wonder if that's really what they're saying. There's they say what they think they say, but <clears throat> nevertheless, those are good, and it's good for us to read those continuously to be reminded. I think Herbert Lockyer, years ago, wrote a book called All the Promises in the Bible and classified some 3,000 or more promises in the Bible. Now, we haven't had time to talk about this, but one of the things that you always have to be careful of when you're claiming a promise 
is to make sure that the promise you're claiming is a promise that God has directed for us to utilize in the church age and not a promise that God has given either to an individual or to Israel in the Old Testament. Because that would be like reading your neighbor's mail, and you don't want to have to pay his bills as well as your bills. So we don't want to read his mail. We want to stick with our own mail. And we want to make sure that if we're claiming a promise, that it is a promise for us. Another thing that I've emphasized the last two nights is when we claim a promise, we need to make sure we understand really what that promise is talking about. That means we have to go to the context. We have to look at the verses that precede that that promise and the verses that come after that promise. We have to understand the original historical context in which that promise was given so that we can make sure that we have a right interpretation of that promise. And when I'm around at some places and I teach a course to pastors on how to study the Bible, one of the things that we emphasize is that you need to pay attention to interpretation before you ever get to application. See, what we want to do is we want to sit down and we want to read the Scripture and we want to just you know, put that stick shift into, into high gear and move right past interpretation and speed on into application because we've bought into this sort of modern era that we want everything to be relevant to us and applicational to us. And if we don't properly interpret the Scriptures, then whatever application we have is going to be a false application. Because we have to make sure that we properly understand what God is saying before we can correctly apply it to our own lives. And we're looking at a promise like that this evening. The promise we have before us this evening is in Psalm 37, 4 and 5. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. Now, these are some favorite promises. I think each of the promises I focused on the last few nights have been promises that most of us have heard many times, and many of you have memorized them. Many of you have known them by heart for many, many years. But perhaps you haven't really taken the time to analyze and study and come to understand what these promises said. Now, we're going to take some time to look at Psalm 37 because to understand these verses, we must place them in the context of Psalm 37. We have to answer the question as we go through this, what exactly does the psalmist mean in verse 4 when he says that God will give us the desires of our heart? Does that mean God's just going to give me whatever I desire? Years ago, back in the mid-80s, I taught a basic theology course over at the College of Biblical Studies. Now it's, uh, or back then it was Houston Bible Institute. And there was a lady who sat in my class for a week or two. She, I don't even think she lasted through the second class. And she came out and confronted me and challenged me in the hall with the fact that, well, I'm not sure you really understand God. I think you're trying to make a whole lot out of this, that, this Bible study that isn't there. God is like a Coke machine. You just put in the right amount of money, and He's going to give you all the blessings you want. And, and she had this very mechanical view of God and of a person's relationship with God. And unfortunately, that is a view that many people have. That somehow if we just say it right, do it right, say the right words, that what God is going to do is give us whatever it is we want. We just have to structure it that way. There was a book that came out, a very popular book that came out a couple of years ago, called The Prayer of Jabez. Now, I'm sure there's some folks here who ran across that book. It was written by a man who should have known better than to write what he wrote in that book. And it became so popular, and it became a merchandising phenomena because you could get a prayer of Jabez coffee cup, and you could get a prayer of Jabez calendar, and you could get a prayer of Jabez magnet to stick on your refrigerator, and you could get a prayer of Jabez uh, trinkets and keychains and all kinds of different things with this prayer out of second or out of first chronicles and in that book he said that what you need to do is just rehearse the prayer of Jabez over and over again and God will bless you 
See, that's this mechanical view that if somehow I can just say the right words, if I just do the right thing, that if I get a hold of the right formula, then God is going to give me what I want. This is not how God works. And this is not what this passage is saying. This is not talking about some kind of bargain with God that if we just do it the right way, say it the right way, hold our mouth the right way, and squint in the right direction, that God is going to give us what we want. But then again, I think that the way this verse is often handled in the commentaries and a number of people that I have heard teach this verse, I think they leave something out. Often they'll come to the second half of verse 4 and say, He'll give you the desires of the heart. And they will translate the idea of desires there as meaning God will exchange your old desires with new desires. God will take those old carnal desires that you had and He'll replace them with new desires as you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that really doesn't fit the grammar and syntax of the passage either. Trouble with both of those views on this passage is it doesn't pay attention to the context. And this is a wonderful promise for us to claim, but we have to understand some things about the context before we really understand the verse. But before we get into the context, I want us to review the basic structure of claiming a promise. The first step is to claim the promise, to recall the promise, to remember a fragment of Scripture, a phrase of Scripture, a promise, a, maybe a series of verses that we have memorized at one time or another, and they particularly apply to the situation or crisis or circumstance that we find ourselves in. That we are like the psalmist, we have taken the Word of God and we have hidden it in our heart so that at the proper time, God the Holy Spirit has something to grab hold of and bring to our attention so that we can apply it in the midst of an adversity, a crisis, or some situation. Once we claim that promise, then we have to think it through. And we have to come through an understanding of the doctrinal rationales that are embedded in that promise. And by doctrinal rationales, I've shown you that there are reasons within that promise for saying what God is going to do. That when God says, I will do thus and so, there are reasons embedded in that promise. We saw that in Isaiah 40, uh, 31 that when God says that they that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles and run and not grow weary and walk and not faint, that back in verse 28 and 29, it talked about the fact that God was the God who neither wearied nor grew tired. And that therefore, because He was omnipotent, that He could exchange His strength for our strength. <clears throat> Last night we looked at Isaiah 41.10. Fear thou not, direct command, thou shalt not be afraid. Why? Because I am with thee. Uh, be not dismayed, thou shalt not be dismayed. Why? Because I am thy God. So that's the rationale behind the fear is that personal relationship that God had, not just with an individual, but in that context, God was telling the Jews that as they saw the Persian armies on the horizon, as they were defeating the Babylonian empires and about to overthrow the Babylonian empire, that the Jews were not to be afraid because God still had a covenant relationship with his people and he would be true and faithful to his promises and would restore them to the land. Now, we can then take application from that. So we have to get into the text to see those rationales. And many times, before I get to the third step, many times what happens is when you and I hit a crisis, sometimes we can claim a promise like that and we are immediately focused and ready to move forward in the plan of God. But other times, it is such an overwhelming situation where we are just feel devastated, we feel like we have been sucker-punched by life, and we just find ourselves reeling, and our emotions are all out of control, and we're just fragmenting on the inside, that what we need to do is say that promise over and over and over again. And I don't mean like it's a Hindu mantra where we're getting involved in some sort of a self-hypnosis by just a constant repetition of a verse, but we're thinking through what that verse says. And sometimes to come to grips with those rationales to where it is a settled uh, belief in our soul takes 
days, sometimes weeks, depending on the circumstances. We just say that verse over and over again. We think it through. We get out a notepad, write down those rationales until we come to that settled conviction. And all of a sudden, what you will notice is that there is this peace that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4 that will come over you and you will have reached that third stage where you've appropriated the doctrinal conclusions in that promise and the, the truths that are there now become a reality because faith in the Word of God means that the Word of God is more real to you than what you feel, what you experience. It's more real to you than whatever the crisis is. It's more real to you than, than any kind of situation you can imagine. You're going to trust God and not let the situation overwhelm you and destroy your spiritual life. Now let's look at our context in Psalm 37. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Psalm 37. And we need to understand some things about this particular context. One of the first things that you notice in the Hebrew, it's not evident in the, in the English, is that this psalm is an acrostic. Now, an acrostic was a certain device that was used where each stanza or each verse or sometimes each section of a psalm would begin with a word that uh, followed the alphabet. So the first word in the first section would start with the letter Aleph in, in Hebrew, and the second section would start with a word that began with the letter Bet in Hebrew, which is like our letter B. And then the third letter in the Hebrew alphabet is not a C letter, it's Gimel, like, like our G. And so the third stanza would begin with a word uh, that, that began with, that, with a gemo. And Psalm 119 is one of the most well-known acrostics. Well, Psalm 37 is also an acrostic, and for the most part, it's every two verses are, are coupled together in a stanza, and then it goes to the next section, and you follow that through. And the reason that it was given in an acrostic is so that it would be easy to remember. It was a mnemonic device that, that is inspired by God the Holy Spirit so that His people could easily memorize Scripture. And I've emphasized the last two nights that you need to memorize Scripture because this, is, this puts the Word of God in your soul so the Holy Spirit has something to grab hold of when you hit that crisis. So Psalm 37 is, a, is an acrostic. Now the main idea in the psalm really comes out in the first verse. So you have to go back to the first verse. If we're going to understand what God is talking about in this promise in verses 4 and 5, we have to go back to the first verse, which reads, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Now, as I said last night with Isaiah 41.10, there's a particular Hebrew construction at the beginning of this verse. We have a prohibition, do not. And in the Hebrew, there's a number of different ways that you can express a prohibition, the strongest of which uses the negative ah plus a, an imperfect form of the verb. And this is the form you have in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not. So if we translate this, thou shalt not, you'll catch the force and the strength of what comes across in the Hebrew. And it reads, thou shalt not... And the English translators translated that fret, which to me is a fairly weak term, has the idea of just sitting back and worrying and, you know, sort of being all concerned about something, not really knowing quite what to do, and you're just sort of under a certain amount of apprehension and consternation. But that is not the meaning of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is the word hara. Actually, it's more of a ch, it's hara. It's in the Hithpael form of the verb, which is the form for a reflexive action. So it is emphasizing the fact that it is your responsibility to do this for yourself. Nobody else is going to do this for you. It's up to you. It's your responsibility not to become overwhelmed by the details of life. And the main idea of hurrah is the idea of becoming excited, becoming agitated, worked up, incensed, or overwrought over a particular situation. Now, I know that doesn't apply to anybody here, but you know there are folks that have that problem. Just the least little thing goes out of, out of whack during their daily schedule, and they just, just fly in 50 different directions, and it takes a couple of days to put them all back together. 
And sometimes it's just over a small thing. Sometimes it's over a big thing. But that's what this is about. It's somebody who is just all worked up over a particular situation. And that is a situation involving a personal injustice. And this injustice that the uh, writer is focusing on is a problem that has to do with a category called the evildoers, the workers of iniquity. And by looking at this particular psalm, Psalm 37, we see that it fits a type of literature that was common in the ancient world called wisdom literature. And in wisdom literature, it is often portraying a contrast between the person who is foolish and the person who is wise. So there's this, this contrast between two different groups of people. And this is frequently portrayed as a contrast between the unrighteous and the righteous. It's painting a general picture that the righteous is a believer in God and the unrighteous is someone who has rejected God. It's not really focusing on them in terms of their, their personal morality at the, any given moment. It is looking at them in terms of a general group, those who are God worshipers and want to obey God and those who have rejected God. And here the psalmist is reiterating a frequent complaint that we find in the psalms. is how is it, God, that this scumbag who lives next door to me that's perverted, that has no morals, has no ethics, how come he is building this brand new $800,000 house in the good part of town, and I'm left here, and I spend all my time going to church and studying the Word and trying to do everything right. And he doesn't do anything right, and he is prospering. And I'm trying to do everything right, and every day I just get hit with another uh, piece of suffering or adversity or problem or loss. And why is it that the righteous suffers and the wicked prospers? In Psalm 94.3, the psalmist says, How long... Shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? How long are they going to be happy? How long are the wicked going to enjoy this life? Are you just going to let them get away with everything? And so the, the theme of this particular psalm has to do with the expression of a desire for justice because someone has been treated in an unfair or unjust way. They are the victim of either real or perceived injustice. And this is something that all of us can relate to. This happens at one time or another, and it happens in one of two ways. There's either an open assault on us. Somebody openly attacks us, and they are unfair or unjust to us in a very clear, overt manner. It's easy to identify them. I recently ran, ac ran across a quote from one of my favorite characters in history, General George Patton. And Patton said, I love it when the enemy shoots at me because then I know where they are. And so when there's somebody who is attacking us in an overt manner, it's sometimes easier for us to handle because at least it's out in the open. But what's more difficult is when it's hidden, when it's a covert assault, when it's a friend or a so-called friend or a co-worker, somebody who smiles to us to our face, and as soon as we turn our back, they just bury the knife to the hilt, and, and they're busy gossiping and spreading rumors about us and running us down. Sometimes it's maybe somebody we work with who's trying to uh, advance themselves over our dead carcass. But whatever the situation may be, we have all faced certain amounts of injustice, certain amounts of unfairness in life, and that is the nature, as I said the first night, when we looked at the various causes for suffering, that is part of what it is to live in the devil's world. We're living in a fallen world. It is never going to be a place where there is no injustice. There always will be Injustice. There's always going to be situations where there's someone in authority over us that treats us in an unfair manner, that shows favoritism to somebody who isn't, isn't worthy, in our opinion, someone who ignores us. There's going to be someone we have to deal with in authority where there's a personality conflict, and you, that may occur at your job, and there may be a, a, a boss, a supervisor, someone over you that, that you just can't get along with at all. Maybe they're not a Christian, and they know you're a Christian, and so they're just going to make it a point to um, go after you. Perhaps you're in a position where you've worked hard for a long time and other people are advanced past you. For whatever reason that may be, you're looked over and they advance. How do we as believers handle that? 
See, the world says there's a lot of different ways that you can handle that, but I'm not going to go through all of those reasons. The Bible says that there are ways we handle it. We go to the Supreme Court of Heaven for our redress. We don't go down to the courthouse and take other believers to court. We don't get involved in trying to defend ourselves in certain situations. We don't try to run down other people. We're not going to get involved in revenge or revenge motivation, vindictiveness. We're not going to let the actions of some people cause us to get out of fellowship, to get involved in uh, anger, bitterness, resentment, and all of the sins that go with that. And that's what the psalmist is wrestling with in this particular situation. He's dealing with the fact that he looks at the unrighteous, the the wicked, and as he examines their life, he sees that they're being blessed, it appears. They're prospering, they're growing, they're advancing. And the test for the believer is a test of not giving in to anger, worry, resentment, a desire for revenge, giving up hope, depression, and all of these things that can can go with that. So he raises the question, or the command, do not fret because of evildoers. Don't get worked up in your life because of what the evildoers are doing, because of what the wicked are doing. Then we go to the second part of that verse, and we read, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. And here we have the Hebrew verb kana, thou shalt not be envious, and kana means to be jealous, to lust after someone else's prosperity, often accompanied with feelings of resentment, bitterness, and revenge. So the psalm begins with a prohibition, a warning against mental attitude sins of Anger, resentment, and bitterness towards those who seem to be blessed and don't deserve it while we aren't getting what we think God ought to give us. And then we're told why in verse 2. See, this is thinking through the verse. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the dry herb. They shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. This is a, a picture that's frequently used in the Scripture to indicate something that has no permanent value. It may appear to be lush and prosperous today, but as soon as that hot Texas sun comes out, it's going to wither up and dry up and be gone tomorrow. And the the lesson we need to take from this is that the Supreme Court of Heaven is going to handle the situation, but in God's time frame. It may not be in our time frame. It's not going to be according to the schedule we set for it. And ultimate justice may not come until the great white throne judgment. And that's why we as believers need to have a perspective that is an eternal perspective and not a temporal perspective. Therefore, we have to understand what God is doing in our lives and how God is using suffering to mature us and to conform us to the image of His Son. The Scripture often uses the imagery of the withering grass and the, and the uh, fading of the flower to picture the, the temporary nature of everything in this world. Isaiah 40, verses 8 through 9, st- states that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You see, the point is that no matter what may be going on in your life, no matter what crisis, no matter what difficulty, what adversity, no matter what the situation may be, the one thing that has permanence for you is the Word of God in your soul. That is everything, and whatever that circumstance is, no matter how much injustice you may be dealing with, And we all know that there are some horrible injustices that people have to deal with in life. That God is going to make things right for the believer eventually. It is not our job to execute the justice. Recently I did a study in in, uh, Psalm 97, I believe, on the idea of vengeance. And see, we read the passages in the Old Testament and in Romans Uh, 13, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And that's really a bad translation. We think of the concept of vengeance as revenge. But the idea in the Hebrew is justice. 
It is not vengeance. Vengeance is a personal thing. It's, it's motivated by, by an animosity and a desire to get back at someone. And that is not the idea of God. God is the supreme ruler of the universe and the supreme judge to whom we are all answerable. And God will execute justice. And there is a tremendous difference between justice and revenge. And God will bring about the justice. And so that forms the background for our promise in verses 4 and 5 is this situation of injustice and a desire to call upon God to bring in justice. So there's a contrast. The contrast is our positive prohibition there. Don't be angry because of the evildoers. Don't be envious because of the workers of iniquity. But instead, trust in the Lord and do good. See, the contrast that is set here is that you don't be, you're not envious, you're not angry, you're not going to get, as the Brits say, you're not going to get your knickers in a knot. Instead, you're going to trust the Lord. You're going to trust the Lord and do good. Now, this passage begins to bring into something, into focus something I mentioned the first couple of nights, and that is that when we're trusting God, there's two elements. There's an active element and a passive element. The active element is, uh, involves uh, sometimes just relaxing and resting in God. It is that element of trusting. We're just going to, as the psalmist is going to say later on down when we get to verse, uh, verses 7 and 8, to rest and to cease, trying to make it work on our own. We trust in Him. That is our place of relaxation. And what, what does it say? It's not just passive. It's and do good. And the idea there is doing that which is right. And I would make a stronger application here. This is the Hebrew word tov. And I've been doing a lot of work recently on our uh, midweek Bible class back at my home church in Genesis 1 and 2. And too often we think the word tov, which is the Hebrew word for good, has a moral sense. This really doesn't have a moral sense. In many places it has to do with doing that which is in accord with the plan of God. When God began to create the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, he had a blueprint. He had a plan. When he finished the first day, uh, he said, he looked at everything and said, and it was good. It didn't mean it was morally good because there was no life there. There was nothing there that was, in, that was capable of being immoral. He was saying it's according to plan. Okay, now we go to stage two. And in stage three, he says, and he looked at everything and it was good. So the idea here is trust in the Lord and do that which is in accord with his plan. So there is a passive idea of resting, trusting in the Lord and an active idea of doing precisely what God says to do in that situation. That may, be involved, that may involve prayer. That may involve being, being uh, grateful and having thanksgiving. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord and do good. And the word for trust here is the Hebrew word batak. And it means to entrust yourself to something, to have confidence in something. ourselves to God, having complete confidence in His ability to handle the situation, which then results in our ability to face that situation with boldness and a sense of security. We may be insecure when we are victims of injustice. So we're to trust in the Lord and do good. And then there's an expansion on the idea in the second uh, clause of the, of the verse, dwell in the land. That means stay where God has put you and feed on what? His faithfulness. So right away we go back to what we talked about the first night, and that is the immutability of God. God has made certain promises, and He is going to fulfill those promises. So we are to trust in Him and do according to His plan. We're to dwell in the land to feed on His faithfulness. That's the source of our sustenance in the midst of the crisis of injustice. Now we set the stage. The stage began by telling us not to be angry about injustice, not to be caught up with with envy and worry, mental attitude, sins. In contrast, we're to trust the Lord. But now we're going to see a progression develop. 
I just want you to note, note this as we go through these next five verses. We talk about trust in the Lord in verse 3, delighting yourself in the Lord in verse 4, committing your way to the Lord in verse 5, resting in the Lord in verse 7, and ceasing in verse 8. There's a natural progression there, and all of those imperatives relate to aspects of trusting in God and realizing the promises that He has made to us in the midst of adversity. So we trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land, and feed on His faithfulness. And then we come to verse 4. Now that we understand the context, maybe this will take on a little different sense for us. The context is dealing with injustice. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Well, our opening word here is the word hit-anag, which is the hit-pa'el form. That's the reflexive form of anag, which has the idea in its root meaning of something that is soft or delicate or dainty. And so in the hit-pa'el, it came to take on the intensified meaning of taking exquisite delight in something. Just getting excited about God. You know, not necessarily just going off on some sort of self-induced emotional trip, but taking real pleasure in the Lord. That you're excited about learning the Word of God. You're excited about reading the Word of God. There is pleasure in learning about God and focusing on His Word. So the psalmist says that we are to delight ourselves in the Lord. Now, this same word is used over in Job 22:26. For then you will delight in the, in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. So the idea of delight here brings into focus for us the idea of making our relationship with God the highest priority in our life. The only way you can have a relationship with God is to know His Word. See, we can't have a direct relationship with God. We only know about God through the Word of God, which is, of course, taught to us by the Holy Spirit, but it's not taught to us, God is not taught to us, apart from His Word. So we have to know His Word. That means we have to make that a priority in our life, to learn His Word, to enjoy His Word, and we have to focus on it. Now, what I'm explaining is that the first part of verse 4 expresses a condition. See, many promises have conditions. It's not just a, a straight promise that God is going to automatically do something for us, but the promise says that you first do something, and then this will follow. For example, last night when we wrapped up, we were talking about the uh, sin of fear and worry and anxiety, and we went from Isaiah uh, 41.10 to... Uh, Psalm uh, 55:22, and then we ended up in First uh, Peter 5:7. I want you to hold your place, and I just want you to turn with me to the New Testament to First Peter 5:7. There we have the promise that many of you have learned. It's a short promise, one of the quick ones to memorize. Casting all your care upon Him, because He cares for you. But if you look at that verse in the English, it begins with an ing word, which is a participle, which means it's not the main verb. It's not cast your care upon him. It is casting your care upon him. In the Greek, it's a participle, which means it's modifying a main verb somewhere. And that main verb is back in verse 6. That's where the sentence begins. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And then you have a participle. It's an anarthrous participle. That means it doesn't have an article, Pastor Rose. And that means it's an adverbial participle. And here it should be a participle of means. So the best way to understand this is to translate it. Humble yourselves. That's the command. And the participle of means gives you how you humble yourself. You do it by casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So we see that embedded in this promise is a condition that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. If you don't humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, the previous verse says that God makes war against the arrogant. He is antagonistic to the arrogant, and if you cast your care upon Him, He's not going to care if you're arrogant. You have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now let's go back to Psalm 37. We see the same kind of condition here. We are to delight ourselves in the Lord. That is our responsibility. 
and then God will do something. He will give you the desire of your heart. He will give you the desire of your heart. Now, before we go any further, I want to take a second to back up and understand this context. He's talking about the righteous, the behavior of the righteous. They trust, they delight, they commit, they rest, and they cease. This is in contrast to the behavior of the evildoer. The evildoer is again introduced in verse 9. So verses 3 through 8 focus on the behavior, the characteristic of the righteous. And verses 9 and following are going to focus on the evildoer. Evildoers are mentioned in verse 9, contrast to the humble, the meek, in verse 11. Verse 12, we come back to the wicked. And then in verse 16, we see this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the, the righteous. So we see this contrast. Now, how do we become righteous? We're going to understand that the righteous is characterized by uh, trusting, delighting, committing, resting, and ceasing, then we better understand what makes you righteous. You see, what makes you and me righteous is not our good deeds. You don't get righteous by doing well. You don't get righteous by morality. We get righteous as a free gift at salvation. Philippians 3.9, Paul says that I may be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. See, in other words, we can have a measure of righteousness from morality. Paul expresses that as from the law. But he says, in contrast, we're to have that, that is that righteousness, which is through faith in Christ. Well, what righteousness is that? That is the righteousness which is from the source of God by means of faith. Now, this is one of the most important things that you can ever understand as a believer in your Christian life. That is to come to grips with the righteousness that God gave you at salvation. It is that righteousness which is the basis for your salvation. And it is that righteousness which is the basis for God's blessing in your life. God's blessing in the life of the righteous is not based on what you do or what you don't do. Let me say that again, because most Christians never understand that. God's blessing in your life is never based on what you do or what you don't do. That's works. It's based on grace. Let me show you a chart. God is perfect righteous, righteous, and He is just. The righteousness is the standard of his character, and the justice is the application of that standard. The righteousness says that God will not have a relationship with anyone that is any less than himself. Our righteousness must conform to his perfect righteousness. So justice means that God is only free to bless those who conform to that standard. And if we don't conform to that standard, then... God is going to have to judge them. So now we come along, and we're down here in the black box, and we are minus R. We lack righteousness. We lack righteousness. Now, Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous, but remember Isaiah 64, 6 says that for all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our unrighteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Is that what that says? No, but that's how most people read this verse. They, they, they just they read all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, but it they think unrighteous. See, the text says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's King James Version. Now, not, your, not your unrighteousness is like a filthy rags, but your righteousness is like a filthy rag. See, no matter how good we get, it's never good enough. In other words, it's still filth in the sight of God, even at our very best. So what happened at salvation is that, put that verse back up there, 2 Corinthians 5.21, is that he, who, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that he was 
judged on the cross for our sins. It was judicially credited to his account. He didn't become a sinner, but it was credited to him as if he it were his sin. At salvation, his perfect righteousness is then imputed to us. So that as Zechariah 3, 1 through 3 pictures, where you have Joshua the high priest taking off his filthy garment and putting on a robe of white, we are now clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not your good deeds, it's not your morality, it's not your righteousness. It is always Christ's righteousness. Because that's the only righteousness that meets the standard of God's perfect righteousness. Now when God looks at the believer, who has at that moment put his faith alone in Christ alone, God has imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ to the believer, and then he declares him to be righteous. Now this all happens simultaneously in in a split second. But God looks on you and sees the perfect righteousness of Christ and says, I declare you to be righteous. That's called justification by faith alone. And now you possess, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you possess the perfect righteousness of God. So when the righteousness of God looks at you, you are approved. So the justice of God is now free to bless you. All of our blessing in the Christian life comes because we have the righteousness of God. Not because we do anything. Now you say, well, wait, wait, a, minute, wait a minute, Pastor. If you're going to say that, then that means that, that I can just go out there and live like the devil, and I'll still get blessed. Well, it's not quite how it works. See, there's still a thing called divine discipline, and there's also a thing called spiritual growth. And God is a loving God, and even though He has determined from eternity past all the blessings that you and I are going to have, He's not going to actually distribute them until we reach the maturity that we can handle it. See, it's yours. It's got your name on it, but God's not going to distribute it until you're ready for it. He is a wise parent. When you have that brand new baby boy that you've been wanting all your years, and you go out and you buy him a brand new vintage car, and you're going to give that to him, you're not going to give those keys to him until he's old enough to handle it. But is it still his? Yes. But you're not going to give it to him. See, that's the idea here. God, from the very beginning, has determined what blessings he's going to give to every believer. And it's, you're not going to get blessed because you read your Bible every day. Now, I know you haven't heard that before. You're not going to get blessed because you read your Bible. Now, now we get into this sloppy evangelical Christian terminology that isn't biblical. And we say, oh, that blessed me to hear that. Well, you know, we, we're not even using the word in a biblical way. And so when we use it in this sloppy, everyday, slangy kind of talk, and we come back to the Bible and we read that misuse of language back into the text, and now we're all confused as to what the text means. See, God isn't going to, is going to bless us because of the righteousness of Christ. Not because I pray, not because I read my Bible, not because I witness, not because I give. God is going to bless me because... I possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. And as I grow and mature as a believer, then God is going to distribute more and more blessings. And as I grow and mature as a believer, that will be manifest in various different demonstrations, such as prayer, witnessing, Bible study, all of these other things. But God doesn't give you, oh, you read your Bible today. Let me give you a little bit of blessing and pat you on the head. You were such a good little Christian today. See, that's works. And God doesn't operate on that principle. He operates on the principle of grace. So we become righteous at the instant of salvation. And we are the righteous in contrast to the wicked. Now that doesn't mean that you're not going to sin and you're not going to get into carnality, but that's why I went back to the fact that Psalm 37 is wisdom literature. It just looks at life in a very simple way, contrasting two groups, the righteous with the wicked. So the righteous are going to trust, delight, commit, rest, and cease. The wicked are not, and the wicked eventually will be judged. Now we look at verse 4, and we're commanded, Delight yourself also in the Lord. Make your relationship with God number one priority. We saw that last night when we went to Luke chapter 10, and we read about Mary and Martha. 
that, that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. She understood what was important. Martha was just all distracted by worry and, and cares, and she was running around making sure the food got cooked right and the servants were doing okay and everybody was comfortable. And Jesus said, said Martha, Martha, you know, where are your priorities? Now, we are to delight ourselves in the Lord, and the result is He will give us the desires of our heart. And this is the Hebrew word, Mish'alah, from the root Sha'al, which means to ask, to inquire. The noun refers to requests or petitions. So it's a completely different idea for us. The idea of desire is closely related to the idea of coveting or desiring or lusting for something, wanting something, whereas the root here in the Hebrew is the idea of asking or requesting for something. In other words, this verse has to do with prayer. This verse has to do with prayer. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will grant you the requests of your heart, that which you have prayed for. Now, what's the context here? What is this believer praying for? This believer is praying for justice, at the Supreme Court of Heaven because they have been dealt with in an unjust manner by the wicked. So when we look at this in context, what the psalmist is saying is if we make God our priority and we're trusting in Him, then rather than getting all caught up in the in the injustice that's directed at us and, and getting involved in mental attitude sins of anger and bitterness and resentment and all the things that fragment our life. Instead, we're to trust the Lord, turn the situation over to Him completely, and He will handle it. He will answer that prayer request. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, but we're going to turn it over to Him and He's going to handle it. So we start off with the priority. Delight yourself in the Lord. Your priority is on your own spiritual growth and spiritual advance. And then verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. And here we have the Hebrew verb galal in the cal imperative. And it has the idea of rolling something over onto someone. The picture is rolling our worry, concern, or problem onto the Lord. I don't like that word commit, because the word commit in English often comes along with this idea of making a pledge. This isn't the idea of making a pledge. It isn't the idea of walking the aisle and committing our life to Jesus. This is the idea of rolling something completely over onto the shoulders of the Lord and letting Him handle the problem and handle the situation. When it says commit or roll our situation over to the Lord, that is the word uh, way. It has to do with the Hebrew word derek, which is a path of the course of our life. So we're going to put our life... Unto the Lord. Trust also in Him. There's our word by tack again. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. We, let it. we turn it over to the Supreme Court of Heaven and let the Lord Jesus Christ handle it, and we move forward in a relaxed manner, not letting the inequities and injustices of life bother us. Isaiah 26.3 uses the same word, batak, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee, batak. Trust in the Lord forever, batak again. For in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. So when we have our confidence in the Lord, we're not going to handle the problem. We're going to let the Lord handle the problem. Now, we have several words for trust that we've seen in our study the last couple of nights that I want to emphasize. Most of these are used in our passage here in uh, Psalm 37. The first word is the one we just emphasized again, batak, meaning to trust, have confidence in, to rely on, or be secure in God. The second word is the word that's translated commit, that is the word galal, which means to roll over or to hand something over for safe keeping. The third word is the word aman, which is a form or a cognate of the word amen, and it has its root in the idea of a support or foundation for a pillar. It has the idea of something that is solid and stable and reliable, something that is stable. You're resting in that. 
fourth word is the word sha'an, which means to lean on a support. See, the Jews didn't just use abstract words like faith or trust. They used words that had a very concrete, visual concept to them. Sha'an, to lean on a support. And then the fifth word, kava, which is the one we saw in Isaiah 40:31, to wait expectantly or to hope confidently. Now, as we go through the passage and we look at what comes after this verse, I want to get down to where we look at the rationale that's embedded later on in this passage. In verse 6, we see that as a result of committing and trusting, verse 6, God will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. In other words, God will vindicate your righteousness. Leave it up to God. Don't try to handle it yourself. There is no real vindication unless it's God's vindication, and your vindication is just going to mess things up. Verse 7, rest in the Lord. That means to relax. Uh, It is the Hebrew word damam, to be silent, to be still, to cease from effort, to cease from trying to deal with the problem yourself. Just turn it over to the Lord. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. This is the Hebrew word hul which means to wait patiently, to be relaxed, to be calm, not to get upset every other minute, but to be completely relaxed. No matter how horrible the situation is, no matter how, uh, how much you dread running into those people, no matter how much you dread facing that situation day in and day out, the Word of God says that you can do it relaxed, cool, calm, because you know that the whole issue is going to be handled by the Lord. And matter of fact, if you try to get involved, you're just going to mess it up completely. And again, we're told, do not fret, thou shalt not get angry because of him who prospers in his way. Notice how the psalmist comes back to that main idea. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass, don't get out of fellowship, don't succumb to mental attitude sin because of what other people are doing. Don't let them control your spiritual life. In contrast, verse 8, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. What you'll get involved in is so much self-induced misery that whatever that other person was going to do to you is nothing compared to what you can do to yourself. Now, when we talk about the rationale that's involved here and understanding the reasoning behind it, it has to do with the essence of God again. Again and again, we go back to those characteristics of God that we saw the first night. I'll put the chart up again in a minute. Because that helps us to think through the situation. And look how the psalmist weaves these attributes of God into the psalm. Look at verse 25. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Who are the righteous? They're believers. I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Talking about God. In other words, God is faithful. That's what this is talking about. God is faithful. He is dependable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the the characteristic of immutability in the essence of God. It's also stated in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. You know, that other person may not be fair, may be extremely unjust. It may be just a horrible individual, but remember, we're pretty rotten sinner too. And it's of the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So we think through the immutability of God, meaning He is faithful to His Word and faithful to His children. Then Psalm 37 verse 28 emphasizes the integrity of God, His justice and His righteousness. For the Lord loves justice. What's the problem? Injustice. Remember, commit it to the Lord because He loves justice and does not forsake his saints. He's not going to forget about it. You may think he is asleep at the switch, but it is a test of our rest and reliance upon him. He may not bring about the judgment on that individual for years, and we may not see it. 
See, most of us want to see it because we got a little revenge motivation going on in there, and we want to enjoy it when God lowers the boom. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. There's no doubt about it. Furthermore, we can have confidence because of God's grace, verse 26, because He is ever merciful, and His descendants are blessed. He is ever merciful and lends. He provides. The idea of lending there is He gives. He is the source of our strength. So we go to the grace of God. It's the unmerited favor, the unearned goodness of God toward us. We have to think through His essence. God is sovereign. The first night we saw that He is the creator of the ends of the earth. If God is able to create DNA structure, if God is able to put together all of the details in the structure of a cell, if God is able to create this entire universe so that every minute detail works in perfect harmony, then God is able to handle your problem. He is the creator of the ends of the earth, so He can handle every detail in His creation. He is righteous, and He is just. And that means that ultimately He will bring judgment on all evil. There is resolution of evil in history. See, if you go to Islam, if you go to, to Hinduism, if you go to Buddhism, if you go to any other uh, world religion, there is not a true resolution of sin and evil at all. Only in biblical Christianity do you have that. God is love. He loves you as a child of God. God loves you, and He will take care of you. He will sustain you. Cast all your care upon Him because He cares for you. So we constantly go back to the character of God. In Isaiah forty twenty eight, we saw that He is the eternal God. Because He is the eternal God, He is not bound by space or time, and therefore He is beyond all of the details within space and time, and He can control them. He can handle our problems. He is omniscient. There never is a problem in your life that God didn't know about billions and billions of years ago. And because God knew you were going to face that problem, and because God loves you, God is going to provide for that. God is omnipresent. He is always with you. Jesus told the disciples, Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and the church age are indwelt by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He will never depart from us. He is omnipotent. He is able to do what is necessary to solve the problem. We can rely upon His power. He will exchange His power for our power. He is veracity. He is absolute truth. So we can rely upon His Word to help us understand reality as it is and not as people would like it to be. And He is immutable. He is absolutely faithful to His Word. So we think through the categories of His essence and then apply those to the crises of life. Now as we close out, just a final review, we come to a promise. We rehearse it. We remember it. We recall it. We think about it. Then we work through it in our minds. We think through the rationales that are there. Don't just memorize the verse. When you get a chance, pull out your Bible and read the context. Think your way through what the Scripture says and why God makes the promise. See if there are conditions associated with that promise. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God so that you can and you do that by casting your care upon Him. And then, as you do that, we get to that point where we can just rest and relax in perfect stability, perfect peace. No matter how many things are going on around us, the whole world can be collapsing, but we can be calm and relaxed because we know that God is in control. And with Job, we can say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we've had the last three nights to study your word. The opportunity we've had to be refreshed in our souls by the promises that you have given us in your word. Realizing the depths of your love and your care and your provision for us. Knowing that there is no situation we face in life that was not known by you before time began. That you have given us everything we need to know to handle any situation in your word. That you have given us in this church age the provision of God the Holy Spirit 
who empowers us and strengthens us in our day-to-day walk. You have given us a complete canon of Scripture. No believer in human history before this age had a complete and sufficient revelation. But we have that. And so, Father, we are thankful for your grace. But, Father, we also realize that there may be someone here this evening who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life. And this is their opportunity to realize that, that they need to have a relationship with you. That only comes about because of what Christ did on the cross. Salvation is not the result of works. Salvation is not based on reforming your life. Salvation is not based on doing well. It's not based on walking an aisle, raising your hand. It's not based on any human factor. It's based on what Christ did on the cross. There is He hung between heaven and earth, between 12 noon and 3 p.m. He paid the penalty for your sin. Every sin you will ever commit was paid for at that time. There's nothing you can add to it. All that you need do is simply trust in Him. Scripture says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is your opportunity to determine for all eternity, your destiny. Now, Father, we pray that you would bring back to our minds the things that we have studied tonight, that we would be challenged to learn your word, to store it up in our soul, to delight ourselves in you, that we may have the spiritual resources we need to handle whatever situation we face in life. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.